Well, for the last uh, number of months, we've been in the book of Ephesians. And today I want to begin, not with the book of Ephesians, but if you can see from my Bible, I want to begin in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, after God has made Adam and he has made Eve and he has made them for each other, this is now what God says about the marriage relationship. Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 and 25, or 24 and 25. says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." Let's stop right there. Have a seat. And tonight we start with this text, and this text is a, this is a text of God's clear intent for marriage. This is a text that reminds us that marriage is not something that, that human beings, we dreamed up, that we decided, hey, you know what, I've got a great idea. And in fact, marriage is a gift that God has, he has designed, that he has instituted, and he has given. And he has made this a gift to be between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman. And it's meant to be this, this covenant of faithfulness for an entire lifetime. This is, this is God's clear intent. But you recognize this is the very end of Genesis chapter 2. And if you're familiar with your Bible at all, you know what happens in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter, chapter 3, oftentimes this chapter is called the fall. This is when Adam and Eve, when they rebel against God. This is when sin enters in and sin begins to corrupt what God has made. Everything that God made, the enemy, he wants to pervert. He wants to corrupt it. And we see this beginning to happen we see this beginning to happen. And so now we have what is God's clear intent, this, this marriage relationship, and then sin enters, and what was once so clear, well, even if it's still clear, it's now, it's now incredibly hard. It's now incredibly hard. And then when you look around in our world today and you see, you see marriages that don't work, you see, husbands or wives do, do terrible things to one another. And, and within the church, oftentimes the only thing we hear when we see grave sin between a husband and wife, oftentimes the only thing we hear is this band-aid, that is this phrase, God hates divorce. And the reality is that most of us haven't really thought deeply about divorce. Most of us haven't really thought about all the different scripture angles that, that in God's word describe divorce. Now, I'll be honest. I, I think that um, most pastors, my, myself included, this is one of those topics that sometimes it exists over here in the ether, and, and you kind of hope you never really have to deal with it too much in your church or in your ministry. But then when you start to dig into it, you find a lot of truth that is so helpful you find a lot of truth that actually can meet your church family right where they are. See, tonight, my, my message, big idea, every, every week, you're probably used to it, every week I have one big idea. Here's my big idea for this evening. It's simple. God does not just hate divorce. God does not just hate divorce. My question for you tonight, how do we navigate this? How do we navigate when vows are broken, when abuse happens, when hearts are hardened? How do we, as a church, we say that we want to build strong families. How do we build strong families and do that 
with more than just the band-aid of telling couples, God hates divorce. Of telling a battered wife, God hates divorce, and so stay, stick it out. Of telling a husband, God hates divorce, and so continue to, to be you know, committed when, when your wife is doing grievous sin. What does it look like to have more than just a Band-Aid? Now, I look around in this room, and I know that there are married couples. I know there are strong marriages, and I know that there are struggling marriages. I look around this room, and I see that there are teenagers here, and you're thinking, well, I'm not married, let alone even worried about divorce. What does this have to do with me? I know that in this room, there are people that are divorced, maybe for the right reasons, maybe for the wrong reasons. I know that we have a very mixed crowd here, and so here's what I would ask. I would ask you to take aside, set aside your presumption. That's what we have to do every time we approach the text, by the way. That's what I do every week when I study it. I, I take my, my presumption and I set it aside, all of my assumptions. Would you take that, uh, set it aside? Will you take your experience and will you set it, set, it, uh, set it aside? Will you even take your life situation, whether you're married, single, divorced, remarried, would you just set that aside? And let's just tonight, let's allow this the scripture to guide the way we think about this hard topic this sometimes confusing topic, and this topic that oftentimes is only taught at a surface level. To do that, this is the journey we're going to go on this evening. Tonight, I want to talk to you about three truths about marriage and divorce. And then after we work through three big truths about marriage and divorce, I have five principles that should help us navigate the way we think about our situation, whatever situation we find ourselves in. And so let's dive in. Let's begin to consider these three truths. And here's our first one. And our first one is really, it is simply a review of everything we've talked about in the last few weeks. The first big truth tonight is that God provides the marriage portrait. If you were with us last week, we talked about how a, a godly wife is supposed to act in a certain way. If you were with us the week before, we talked about how a godly husband is supposed to act in a certain way. See, these, these, these expectations really are expectations that God has for marriage, but they're also the expectations that a wife should have in the marriage, and they're the expectations that a husband should have in the marriage. Some of this is, uh, I just took it directly out of my notes from last week, and so you're thinking, Mike, you've already preached that. Yeah, but I want this to be so crystal clear in our mind. Let's start with how God gives us this picture, this portrait of what marriage is meant to look like. God provides the marriage portrait. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 31 through 33. It says, Therefore, based on all this other stuff we've talked about the last two weeks, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Does this sound familiar? This is what we just read out of Genesis chapter 2. Verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. See, built into God's portrait, built into God's design are some very clear expectations. Expectations that a wife should have. Ladies, these are expectations that you should have of your husbands here in this room. Expectations that a husband should have. Husbands, these are expectations that you should have of your wife. Uh, teenagers, these are things that you should be thinking about as you get older. This is what I should expect from uh, the person I'm looking for, uh, looking to, to marry. And so let's talk about these expectations. The first, this came right out of last week's notes. Wives should expect sacrificial love. 
Ladies, this is what you should expect from your husbands. Back up a few verses in Ephesians 5. Verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives. It doesn't end there, though. It gives us some very clear, a very, very clear high bar expectation for husbands. Love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, I don't have time to, to uh, rehash that entire sermon we did two weeks ago about husbands, but this is the message. Men in this room, husbands, you are to love your wives in a sacrificial way. This means that you're to love with leadership. We've seen that in this text. The husband is the head. He is the, the leader. He's the one moving the, the household toward holiness. This means that the husband is to provide for his family and for his wife. The idea here is that the same exact way the church looks to Christ to find grace and love and sacrifice and provision. Listen, the same way that we as the church look to Christ for all of those things, a wife should expect to look to her husband to provide everything that she needs. To, to walk with her, to care for her, to cherish her, to nourish her. Those are some of the words that we've looked at in these last few weeks. The spirit of this command, the spirit of this command, husbands should do everything possible to put the needs of their wives before their own desires. This is what a biblical, godly husband does. Does everything possible to put the needs of his wife above his own. Now, notice it doesn't say once. We, we can go down trails of, of this being abused and a guy becoming a doormat saying, well, I've got to love sacrificially and so I shouldn't do any. No, no. Listen to the spirit of this command. Put your wives first. Care for her. Cherish her. This is what a wife should expect from her husband. And then secondly, husbands. Husbands should expect sacrificial submission. Look at verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, we, we, we covered this last week. We, we talked about some of the, 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 these words, the word submit. This is not a word that you can get around. It, it literally means to submit, to obey, or to subject yourself. Now, now, we discuss, this is not saying the husbands are to enforce submission out of their wives, but rather, this is the kind of submission where a wife, where she willingly chooses to follow the lead of her husband. She willingly chooses to respect her husband. She willingly chooses to obey him. This is the submission that is commanded in the scripture. Now, look, this is talking about wives and husbands, but this is also, this is giving the image of the church in Christ. You see, what is it that Christ should expect from the church? When Christ looks at the church, he should expect the church to obey him, to trust him, to, to follow him regardless of how hard or how easy what he asks is. The church does this. The church submits to him because they know that Christ is never going to lead us astray. And so husbands should expect their wives to follow, to submit to them. And the wives, as they do this, they, they hold this expectation. My husband's never going to lead me in the right, lead me in the right path. And the, and the husband expects my wife is going to be with me through, through thick and thin. We're together. We're one. This is what a husband expects, and this is what a wife expects. I mean, remember, look at the spirit of the command. 
This is that wives should do everything possible to honor and trust and follow and obey their husband. The husband does everything possible that he can to make sure he meets the needs of his wife above his own sacrificially. And the wife does everything that she can to make sure she honors, respects, and follows and obeys her husband. Listen, if both of these people, husband and wife, if they are both striving to fulfill their own obligation, I'm going to tell you what. Not only will they have a wonderful marriage, but there's nothing this world can do in it say to critique it. You can have a world that is anti-Christ, anti-church, anti-biblical marriage, but when they look at a marriage like that, there's nothing they can say. Because this is exactly how God designed it. Now, can they pick out the points where it goes wrong or where a husband doesn't do, do what he does or he abuses his authority or when a wife abuses her, her position? Absolutely. We can always find fault where there's sin. But listen, if we live in the ideal there's no critique. This is what they should expect, but there's even more that I would argue should be expected. Verse 32 reminds us that both should expect to display the gospel. Both should expect to display the gospel. Verse 32 says, this, is a, this mystery is profound. <clears throat> and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You know, we have to realize that there is something more important even than your marriage. There is something more, even greater at stake here than your health as a marriage or within your marriage. Your marriage is meant to display the gospel. Your marriage, when someone looks at a husband, they should see a husband sacrificially loving and leading his family. And they should be able to visibly see an image of Christ before their very eyes in the way that Christ sacrificially loves and leads the church. When someone looks at a wife, uh, they should be able to look at a wife and see the, wife, the way the wife trusts and follows, respects and obeys her husband, and they should have a, a picture laid out before them, better than any sermon illustration I'll ever give, of, a, of the church in the way the church honors, respects, follows, trusts, and obeys Jesus Christ. See, husbands and wives, this should be your target you should pray. In fact, husbands and wives tonight, when you go home, you should pray together. Lord, let our marriage be a picture of the gospel. This is, this is what you should expect. You get, to, you get to have a wonderful evangelism strategy. Here's what it looks like sometimes in my life. When I have friends and even family members who their marriage is struggling. And they generally don't want to talk to me about Jesus, but when their marriage is on the rocks, it's amazing how quickly they call me and say, Mike, here's what's going on. What should I do? And I say, you know, you know what I'm going to say, right? Like, I know you're going to talk about Jesus. Like, yeah, I am. It starts with Jesus. I say, you know, my marriage, there's nothing special about it except for the fact that I'm trying to follow Jesus and my wife is trying to follow Jesus. This is not rocket science. This is God's design. So a husband should expect something from his wife, the way she follows. A wife should expect the husband to love, lead, love sacrificially. And both, look at this, both should expect covenant faithfulness. This, this should be baked in to a marriage. 
When you get married, you make vows to each other. And those vows that you make, those are vows not to be like, hey, I'll be faithful sometimes. This is, this is, I will be faithful. This goes all the way back to that passage we looked at at the beginning. Genesis 2, verse 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the picture of covenant faithfulness. This is, this is a scripture talking about how in a marriage and when it's consummated, in a mysterious way, God joins a husband and a wife together so that, yes, he knows they're separate. He knows they're distinct beings. But he now looks at you in a mysterious way as you are one. And within that oneness, there is an expectation of covenant faithfulness. This is the expectation. <clears throat> what, what is this? What does this expectation look like in the Old Testament? Well, there's a, sometimes an easy-to-miss passage in the Old Testament that describes this marriage expectation. It's kind of a weird passage, and it's kind of in a weird uh, point in, in Israel's history. But let me show you something about the Old Testament marriage expectation. And I want to show it to you from Exodus chapter 21, verse 10. This is talking about something that was never sanctioned in the scripture, but was unfortunately practiced. This is talking about polygamy, right? And if you're a visitor here, you're, like, you're thinking, is this one of those churches? Oh, where's the exit, right? <laughs> polygamy was never sanctioned. God never said, yeah, this is a great thing. God allowed it. And maybe another day we can get into some of the reasons why. But this is not the ideal, in fact, we, part of why we know this is not the ideal is in the New Testament, in the description of a church elder, it makes it very clear that he's a husband of one wife <laughs> because polygamy is not the ideal. You look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and he shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. That is God's picture of marriage. But in Exodus chapter 21, there is a, polygamy is happening. Again, not the ideal, but it's happening. And, and there was, a, there was a, a potential for a husband to say, you know what, um, I'm going to get another wife, and I'm going to find, uh, you know, maybe someone who pleases me more. And, you know, I'm going to enter into this new marriage, and so what am I going to do with my other wife? Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to neglect her. I'm going to care for my, my new wife and my old wife. Well, tough luck for her, Right? With that in your mind, look at, it. look at Exodus chapter 21. Look at verse 10. It says, If he, a husband, if he takes another wife to himself, then speaking about his first wife, he sh it says, He shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. This is teaching that if in the unideal circumstance, if a man has another wife, if he becomes polygamous, it says his first wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing. Look, that means he should provide for her. But then third, her marital rights. This means that he should continue to be intimate with her. This is the idea of, of cherishing care and even physical intimacy. This is what a woman should expect within the covenant of marriage. We'll return to that in a moment. But, but this just teaches us right now. <clears throat> Within a marriage, a husband is, is duty-bound to provide physical well-being for his wife and 
physical and emotional connection to her. I would argue the New Testament only expounds on this and only makes it even more clear. So much so that I'm not even going to quote you a marriage passage. We've quoted enough already. I'm just going to remind you of our theme verse for the year at Valley. And I just want you to consider what this looks like to be applied in the marriage relationship. The New Testament expectation, Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, maybe you've memorized it already. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I mean, this, this might uh, stretch our thinkers a little bit, but listen. This text that applies to all Christians in relationship to one another, guess what? where it also applies? It applies in your marriage. You realize in your marriage, you are to walk in love. You realize in your marriage, you are to put the needs of your spouse above your own. This, this sacrificial love, it doesn't just apply to a husband. It applies to husbands and wives. Husbands have to lead in that. I, I would argue husbands have to clearly lead in that. But husbands and wives, all Christians are to walk in love toward each other. The New Testament expectation, it doesn't diminish the marriage covenant. It expands on it. It highlights it. It rejoices in the, the expectation within marriage. This is, this is our first major truth. God provides the marriage portrait. Now, some of you, you've been here the last few weeks, you're saying, Mike, you've said this stuff over and over again. Do you have any new material, right? Yeah, well, let's continue. See, we have to make sure that that foundation is clear before we move on to what's next. And here's what's next. Not only does God provide the marriage portrait, but God provides the divorce parameters. God draws the lines and he says, if these lines are crossed, divorce is permissible. What are, what are the divorce parameters? Well, the first thing that comes to your mind is the last thing I'm going to talk about. The first thing that comes to our mind is adultery, it, uh, sexual sin. We, we will talk about that. But, but I want to begin with how God provides parameters in the Old Testament when covenants are broken. Covenants are broken. This is really the issue here. Divorce is allowed when covenants are broken in certain ways. Here's the first way, the first Old Testament passage. Covenant breaking because of any indecency. Now, it's kind of a weird phrase, any indecency. Now, again, I, I want to I preface this. There are things God allows that are not ideal. I would argue this is part of that. And I'm going to show you why he allows it. And Jesus actually shows us why, so I don't even have to prove it. But let me show you this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 7. It says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he finds, excuse me, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, any indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in his hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is, 
This is an Old Testament case law. The Old Testament case law is when they, they take principles of the Scripture and they start to apply them in different situations. They say, what does it look like in this situation? What does it look like in this situation? What does it look like in this situation? And here's the situation that this text finds us in. A husband takes a wife and then he finds a cause of indecency in her. And then he gives her a certificate of divorce. Now I want you to notice a few things. I want you to notice this certificate of divorce. Because she has been divorced, she is now free to remarry. See, I I want us to understand something from the very beginning. Old Testament Hebrew law. Divorce, official divorce, meant that the the one divorce was free to remarry. There was no such thing as... Can someone, if someone's divorced, in what situation can they be remarried and what situation can't they? Old Testament law made it very clear. This is, you have a certificate of divorce. You are now free to remarry. Here, here's the second thing I want you to notice. This any indecency, this has more to do with what I, I would argue the man than the woman. You see, in this moment, when the man divorces his wife, he's not divorcing her for adultery. You realize that if he was to divorce her for adultery, the guys around him would be like, what are you doing? We're supposed to stone her. See, see, adultery, the consequence for adultery was not divorce. The consequence for adultery was death. So this isn't saying to a man, if you find in your wife that she's been unfaithful to you, then you can divorce her. No, this is actually talking about the man, and I'm going to argue his hard heart because of Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, when Jesus says, Moses allowed you to divorce because of your hardness of heart. Jewish people built on this. They called it the any cause clause. So, so for a Jewish man, if he had any reason, found any reason for his wife that he did not like her for any reason, the classic example most people use is you burnt the toast. But literally, all he legally had to do was to give her a certificate of divorce which meant he was no longer responsible for her. He no longer had to provide, Exodus chapter 21, verse 10, he no longer had to provide food or clothing or her marital rights. His hardness of heart would send her on her way. And this certificate of divorce, listen very carefully, it was a protective device for the woman so that she could be free to remarry especially in that day where it would be very, very hard to provide for yourself as a single woman. This is actually God trying to provide a level of care for a woman whose husband had hardened his heart against her. In fact, I I mentioned Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, Jesus' words. He says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But notice what he says at the end. He says, but from the beginning... It was not so. For this reason, a husband shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God's ideal is clear. God's instruction is clear. God's portrait is clear. But sin enters, and it jacks everything up. And what you find is you find, especially in these settings, you you find a, a man who would be hard-hearted toward his wife, and in his hardness of heart, he would either fail to provide for her because he found another wife, or he would 
send her packing. And the Lord, is, he was trying to cover her, provide protection for her so that she wasn't just destitute in the wind. God allows divorce for covenant breaking because of any indecency. This is, this is not ideal. This is because of hardness of heart. This is God dealing with sinful humanity. Let me give you another reason. I actually combine two, and you'll see how they're connected. Secondly, God allows covenant breaking because of abandonment or abuse. Abandonment or abuse. Back to Exodus 21, verse 10. I'm going to add to verse 11 this time. Exodus 21.10 says, If he, remember this is the man who's become a polygamist, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish his first wife of her food, of her clothing, of her marital rights. Verse 11, And if he does not do these three things for her, check this out, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Now, what is this saying? She shall go out for nothing without payment of money? Wait, wait. does this mean she doesn't get like any money? Is, is he not supposed to pay her? No, this is actually talking about the dowry that a wife or a husband would pay to the wife's family to marry her. And if he stops providing for her and she goes out, she is not bound to pay back the dowry to him. Her family is not bound to pay back the dowry to the unfaithful husband. Once again, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see God's protection for the woman. In a culture where that was, that was led by men, as it was supposed to be, sometimes there were men that would lead that had hard hearts, had wicked, evil intentions. In God, he was providing a covering, a protection for these women. The, the same point is expanded in the New Testament. What we have in, in the Old Testament is that if a husband is, he has destructive behavior toward his covenant relationship with his wife, she is free to leave. She is free to be divorced. She is free to move on. If, if he is doing destructive things, if he's not providing, if he's abandoning, and it would be argued even if he's abusing, he's clearly not providing within the, the, uh, the term of the marital rights here. I would argue the same point is expanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about marriages and, and from lots of different angles. But verse 15, it says, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. Now again, this is talking about a, a, a Christian spouse and an, a non-believing spouse. And this is talking about the, the non-believer, if they abandon the relationship, if they disengage, it says, if the non-believing or unbelieving partner separates it, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. They're not bound. God has called you to peace. Now, I want you to notice that phrase, in such cases. Now, this is a, this clause right here, this connection in this, this, this phrase is so important. When, when the Bible says, in such cases, this is not trying to give a narrow focus it's trying to give a broad focus. This is saying in cases where there is, when there is abandonment within the relationship, uh, abandonment is neglect. Abandonment is a form of abuse. 
Abuse would be a case that would be argued in the same exact leg, the same exact way, with the same exact posture. In such cases, the aggrieved spouse is free. They're no longer bound. In such cases, the aggrieved spouse is free. And remember, that freedom, that freedom is a freedom even to move on to remarry. This is the, the idea of this case law argument that's being presented within 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This, this gives us a picture. That when covenant bonds are broken, the, the, the guilty party breaks them, but the aggrieved, the hurt, the innocent party, they're free. Let me give you the last one. This is the one that we all expect and we're all accustomed to. It's covenant breaking because of adultery. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. So the Pharisees came up to Jesus to test him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Does that phrase any cause sound familiar? Hold on to that. He, Jesus, answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And Jesus said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Look, Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 2. He says, look, God created mankind, male or female. He, he created these two genders, and he, he made a male to be married to a female, so the two would become one. Jesus, he affirms, he affirms this picture of marriage. Verse 6 says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, they come back, they say, verse 7, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce to send her away? And Jesus answered them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to, devote, you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for Sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, we've read this a hundred times, but sometimes reading it within the context of what was happening helps us understand it even better. See, in Jesus' day, there were, there were a couple of schools of rabbinic thought that were in a, an argument over divorce. The school of Hillel, this was a rabbi, and he had tons of, of disciples, tons of followers. In the school of Hillel, they believed in this divorce for any cause. Here's what they did. They took that Deuteronomy 24 passage that we looked at earlier when it said that for any, uh, any indecency, and they separated the two. They took any cause, and they took indecency, and they separated indecency, and they separated any cause. And what the Hillel school taught is they said that, that a man can divorce his wife for any cause, period. You can just walk up to her, hey, I feel like divorcing. Here you go. Here's your certificate. And that's what one major school of rabbinic thought was teaching in Jesus' day. The other school was the, the school of Shammai, and they argued that divorce could only be for covenant-breaking. They, they argued this one cause, not any cause, but one cause, and that one cause was considered covenant-breaking. But, but then within that one cause was this understanding adultery is the chief among those, but they did not discredit any of those other causes within the Old Testament. They understood abandonment 
They, they understood that. And so really what's happening, notice these religious leaders, they are trying to corner Jesus and they are trying to get him into a political argument that was the hot debate of their day. And they cornered him and they say, hey, Jesus, what's your take? Do you side with Hillel or do you side with Shammai? Which side are you going to fall on? And Jesus made it clear that he landed on the, the very more conservative side of this, which was the side that was not saying simply that divorce should be so narrow only for adultery, but rather he's saying, he, he was saying, you should not divorce for any cause. You should not divorce for any cause. You should not be walking around with this freedom to say, you know what? I just feel like it's time for a new wife. I'm done with you. This was Jesus' point. This was Jesus' argument. This is Jesus' heart here. Now, I understand that some of us might fall in different places in our convictions here. I understand that some of the arguments about the other causes might not be very convincing to you, and that's fine. If, if you have a conviction that says it has to be sexual unfaithfulness, it has to be adultery, and that's where you are, I'm not going to try to twist your wrist anywhere. But, but I do want you to understand that this is broader in the scripture than just one verse. It's broader in the scripture than that phrase that I used at the very beginning of today when we, we said, what about that phrase, God hates divorce? I'm curious. I, I'm just very, I, I honestly am curious. Has anybody ever heard that phrase before? Can you tell me where it is in the Bible? This is an interesting, an interesting place of maybe historical translation uh, journey that we're going to go on. The phrase God hates divorce, it actually is in the Bible. It's in the, the King James Version of the Bible. Malachi chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Listen to this. This is in this, but, and you'll hear this phrase. Verse 15, it says, And did he, God, not make one? Yet he has... Excuse me, this is King James Version, so you're going to have to spare me uh, or be patient with me for a second. It says, yet he had the residue of the Spirit. This means he put his Spirit in them. And wherefore one, for what purpose is what that means? That he might seek a godly seed. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously against the wife of his youth. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth Everybody say hateth. I know you want to. He hateth putting away. This is the word for divorce. He hateth divorce. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that ye, not, that ye deal not treacherously. Okay, that was a mouthful. You, you realize the King James Version, though, is one of the... Uh, let me say it like this. Have you ever heard someone say, I can't trust the Bible. It's been translated so many different times. You ever heard that? So that's actually a legitimate argument against the King James Version. Much of the King James Version of the Bible was translated from not Hebrew and Greek, but it was translated from Latin or other parchments from other languages. And so the King James Version of the Bible, some of it was translated from German as well. The King James Version of the Bible, it gets a little sticky in places with translations that sometimes you read the King James and you'll read a modern version. You're like, these don't match up very well. I'm a little confused by this. See, see more modern versions of the Bible, they do the translation and they go back to the oldest 
original language documents they can find. That's why you'll find footnotes occasionally in your Bible that says, the oldest manuscripts do not contain this verse, or the oldest manuscripts do not contain this word. Because our translations have actually gotten more accurate. They've gotten stronger. And so you read this, this phrase, God hateth, divorceth. No, that's not exactly. Uh, and you hear that. And, and pastors hear that. And then we counsel and we say, you know what? God hates divorce. And so when we, we're faced with hard situations in marriage where there is abandonment issues or there's adultery issues or there's abuse issues, and our go-to knee-jerk reaction is to quote this and say, God hates divorce. Let me read two different translations for you, though. The NIV. I like to joke this is the, the nearly inspired version. Here's what it says. It says, has God not, excuse me, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? He's speaking of a marriage. What does God seek? Godly offspring. He says, be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Verse 16. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. Um, this says the Lord Almighty. It says, be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. God says that this man who does wrong to his wife is being unfaithful. That word unfaithful in the, the King James Version is the word treacherous. This is God's concern here. The ESV says, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? What, what is God seeking with marriage? God, the offspring. He, he designed marriage for children. He wants you to have children. In fact, have lots of them, right? Like, go have lots of kids. He says, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let not, or excuse me, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garments with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithful. Thank you. I was thinking about the next thing I was going to say. That happens sometimes. I was thinking about translation. I was thinking about how a good translation brings clarity. And a bad, bad translation can bring harm. But we've taken this text. I want you to notice, what, what is God's point in this text? His point is that husbands should be faithful and not treacherous to their wives. And we have taken this and we have quoted this when husbands are treacherous to their wives. And we've said this to the wife and said, God hates divorce. This is not how we build strong families. See, I want us to understand the tension here. Does God hate divorce? Yes. God made us husband and wife. He made us for union. He made us for marriage. But listen, God does not just hate divorce. God hates unfaithfulness to the marriage vows. God hates it when a spouse is breaking their covenant to their husband or to their wife. I said we had three major theological truths. The first one, God gives us, he provides the marriage portrait. 
The second one, I want you to understand, God provides the divorce parameters. He tells us that these are the parameters you should operate within, not outside of these. You shouldn't just any cause divorce. You should operate according to these parameters. And then third, listen, God provides the forgiveness plan. I just want to remind you. I just want to remind you that even in really tough marriages, there is hope. There can be forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Can you just let those words saturate your soul for a moment? Think about this toward your spouse. I should be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving. If you were with us when we preached Ephesians 4.32, that word forgiving is the word be gracious to each other. Do good, do what's best to one another. You see, I want, to, I want you to remember that a repentant heart combined with a forgiving heart can heal the hardest of marriages. Because a repentant heart combined with a forgiving heart, once again, is a display of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We forgive as we've been forgiven. You might be sitting here today, and this might be super awkward because things are rough between your, your husband or wife, and you're sitting right next to each other, right? You're thinking, oh boy. This is heavy. But I'm going to tell you, if that's you right now, there, there is hope. There is healing. There is a way to move forward. What is the way to move forward? Well, let me end with these five principles. I'll be brief here. Let me end with these five principles. We've covered these three big truths. Truth number one, God provides the marriage portrait. Truth number two, God provides the divorce parameters. Truth number three, God provides a forgiveness plan. In Christ, you can forgive what has been hurt. And in Christ, you can repent and find that forgiveness. But let me give you these five principles. First of all, in covenant, divorce should be earnestly avoided. Hear me very clearly. My goal in preaching this is not so that I have 10 people knocking on my door on Monday saying, Mike, I think I qualify for divorce. Listen, brother or sister in Christ, if, if your marriage is rough, you should do everything possible to avoid divorce. I'm going to tell you right now, you should not make that decision in a vacuum. If you're sitting there thinking, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divorce my husband, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go leave him, I'm, I'm going to divorce my wife, and you're not talking to the church elders, I'm going to tell you right now, you are not making the decision in wisdom. You have a church community, you have church elders. Elders are given this responsibility to walk you through this. Elders can counsel you and your spouse toward hope and healing. You are not alone. Do not make that decision in the vacuum. If there is sin in your marriage relationship, guess what? Jesus gives us instructions on how to deal with sin. The elders will help walk through the process of how to deal with sin. Maybe you should get divorced. But, but that, should be, that should be the last case, the last ditch effort. That should be the last option. Listen, you should earnestly avoid divorce. Principle number two. In covenant, marriage should be intentionally tended to. Let me just say a few things. Singles in this room, this means you should marry wisely. <laughs> the person you marry has such a giant impact on your life. I'm going to say the same thing. You should not date and marry in a vacuum. Have godly people around you that can affirm or say, I think you're off on that one. 
Listen, this means that in, in a marriage, you should focus on your own responsibility. Husbands, are you lovingly sacrificing? Husbands, are you waking up every day and you're, are you praying, Lord, help me to lovingly sacrifice? Wives, are, are you sacrificially submitting? Are you making it hard on him or easy on him? Wives, or husbands, are you making it hard on her or easy on her? Mary wisely, focus on your own responsibility. And I'm going to say one more thing. You should be worshiping together. If your marriage is on the rocks, you need to be in church as much as possible. Not because it does anything for me, but I'm going to say hearing the truth of God, hearing the gospel, hearing the word, letting it wash over your mind, letting it pour into your heart, that will start to strengthen you. That'll start to strengthen you. Principle number three. When a covenant is broken the innocent party is free to divorce. When a covenant is broken, the innocent party is free to divorce. I want you to picture it like this. I've found this illustration helpful. When you sign a death certificate, you don't kill someone. They're already dead. If your partner has broken covenant grievously, if they are unrepentant and if you've done everything you can to try to remedy it, if you've worked with the church elders, if you've done everything in your power and there's nothing that has worked, listen, if, if your covenant is broken, the relationship is dead. You divorcing them is not you ruining your marriage. You divorcing them is signing the death certificate. You are free to do that. When a covenant is broken, the innocent party is free to divorce. Fourth, when a covenant is broken, the innocent party is free to remarry. In the Old Testament, the certificate of divorce gave automatic availability to remarry. That, that hasn't changed. The 1 Corinthians seven fifteen says, you are no longer enslaved. You are not bound. You are free. This isn't saying this in a joyful way. This is painful. I know, we're not talking about easy things. This is definitely painful, but you are free. Now, notice that I said the innocent party. What about the guilty party? What about the one who has committed grievous acts and has caused the marriage, that has broken the marriage covenant? Are they free to remarry? I think according to the scripture, they are only free to remarry if the innocent party has remarried first. See, up until that moment, there is still possibility for reconciliation. I would say that the grieve, the, 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 the guilty party in that situation, they should be doing everything they can to right their life before the Lord and to right their life with the possibility of reconciliation. They, they should not be focusing on another marriage. Now, if the innocent party remarries, then the guilty party, I would argue, is then free themselves to remarry. There are people that see this differently. This is not a, an issue that I'm going to die for, but this is how I understand these scriptures. Fifth principle. When a covenant is broken, the innocent party is free to forgive. I just want that to sit with you for a moment. Let's say you're in a marriage relationship and it's bad. And you, you, as you listen today, you said, you know what? I have an exit strategy now. I, I, can, I can, according to God's word, I can divorce. Listen, this doesn't mean you have to. In fact, I, I'm going to argue that it's probably worth it for you to fight for your marriage and do everything that you can do to rescue it and to forgive. 
Because you know what forgiveness is? It's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of our life in Christ. Now, I should have known that we were going, I didn't wear my watch, this is my excuse. I didn't wear my watch tonight. I should have known we were going to go a little late tonight. But I want to end with communion. Communion is for those who are in Christ. If you've yet to trust in Christ, I would say tonight's a night for you just to sit and observe. Communion is also for those that are sinners. Listen, this is not saying you need to be good enough or you need to have a perfect marriage to share in communion. But rather, what I'm going to ask is in the next few moments, if you'll just take this time to go to the Lord in repentance. Go to the Lord in gratitude. Thank him for Jesus and his death and resurrection. Ask him to help you think clearly, especially about your marriage relationship if you're married. But ultimately, let this be a moment where you remember that all of your sin through trusting in Jesus and his death and resurrection has been forgiven. Church, the table is now open if you'd like to come and collect the elements and take them back to your seat. After everyone has the elements, I'll come and we will share in communion together. You you may come forward. I want to encourage you, if you have some questions about what I shared tonight, feel free to to linger afterward. Come find me and come talk. Obviously, you can email me and and reach out. Um, This is a hard topic. And this is a hard topic that we, we try to be brave in the way we cover it. But where we end up landing isn't about marriage and it isn't about divorce. Where we end up landing is remembering what the Lord has done. Don't you just love that about the gospel? Wherever we've been, whatever we've done, we always come back knowing that in Christ we have hope. I hope you sense that tonight. If you are struggling with guilt or a weight or a burden, I also want you to know that there is grace for you. I'd love to pray with you and talk with you. Uh, most anyone around this room would love to do the same exact thing. If you, if you need some, some help walk, working through whatever's going on in your mind and your heart. That said, though, let's turn our attention to the table before we bring our service to a conclusion. You know, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and, and uh, he, he broke it and he gave thanks. Would you bow your head with me and, and give thanks? Father, I thank you for Christ. Thank you for the way that you, by your spirit and by your word, are working in this church family. Father, I pray for, I pray for the marriages in this, in this family, this church family. I pray that you would strengthen them with tonight's message. Father, we bring our guilt before you and recognize that we have, uh, we've all failed. We've all broken covenant in certain ways. And yet we all have hope in Christ Father, I pray that the the hurting marriages and the the difficult marriages would sense that hope this evening. And Lord, more than anything, I pray that every person here, that they would have a sense of, of the faithfulness of Christ. God, as we come to you in this moment, we come and we want to we want to say thank you. That Jesus died to pay the price for our sin. That we don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve your grace, but you have given it in abundant measure. We thank you that he was resurrected from the grave and he is the victorious reigning Savior and King and he is our hope. And we thank you for him and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Lord Jesus, he took the bread. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is a, the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me.